that worked much better than when I did in class. <laughs> Thank you. Um, great, so welcome to the second keynote of the conference and the final session for today. I'm Sora Selen, and I'm so excited to be chairing this keynote with uh, the amazing Ali Musalam, who I'm also lucky to call a friend and comrade. So I'm going to begin by making some boring kind of announcements, and then I'll introduce um, Alia. So just very quickly, the conference starts again tomorrow at 9.30 sharp. Um, we will have coffee though. And after the session, some of us will be going downstairs to the George, so just to kind of decompress together now that we can, because it's in real life. So please do join us, just follow one of us downstairs basically afterwards. Great, so I'm really excited to introduce Ali Masalem, who whose keynote is entitled On Finding a Meaningful Story to Tell, Thinking About Counter-Hegemonic Storytelling with Gramsci. Ali Masalem is a cultural historian interested in songs that tell stories and stories that tell popular struggles behind the better-known events that shape world history. She was previously a postdoctoral fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation in Berlin, where she was writing a book on the visual and musical archiving practices of the builders of the Aswan High Dam and the Nubian communities displaced by it. She's also a visiting scholar at Humboldt University's Taukir, exploring the experiences of Egyptian, Tunisian, and Algerian workers and subalterns on the fronts of World War I and the resulting revolts in these different regions in 1918 through songs that capture these experiences. Some of her writings can be found in the Journal of Water History, the History Workshop Journal, Jadaleya, Bidayat, and Madamos. In producing her research in different formats, she has also tried her hand at playwriting um, and has also written Rawi in the long-form non-fiction platform, 68 pages. She's an experimentative pedagogue and has also founded um, site-specific public, public history projects across Egypt and taught at the American University in Cairo, the Cairo Institute for Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the Free University in Berlin. And I'll just finish by saying, I think Alia's research is really some of the most uh, exciting theoretical work, empirical work, but also really politically committed work that is so, uh, has been so, I think, crucial to pushing kind of the broad field of thinking about Gramsci in the Middle East and North Africa, and in particular, um, I think, very creative and very experimental, which is always amazing to see. So I'm going to hand it over to Alia now. Thank you, Sara. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you, John. Thank you um, for inviting me. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be talking about Gramsci, who I feel I spent long periods of time thinking about uh, my dissertation with. I'm very happy to be back at LSE and to look at the student dorms and smirk and look at all the students struggling with their dissertations and smirk. And, um, yeah, I always promised myself I'd come back to London Rich. That hasn't happened yet, but I don't have to think about how much a coffee costs anymore, and that's a nice place to be. Um, uh, what I'm hoping to do today is to, to look at the research that I did for my PhD and um, that I'm trying to turn into a book, uh, to look at the building of the Aswan High Dam in Egypt in the 1960s. And the questions I want to ask is, as historians, when we go back to these moments 
um, of a sort of strong ideological hegemonic moments. Um, how, how do we find uh, a meaningful story to tell without, without contributing um, to these hegemonic structures? In this case in particular, I'm talking about Adam, and I, and I always struggle to think about how I can historicize the dam without reconstructing it, especially that I think about the dam in terms of the experiences of the workers who built it, built it and the uh, Nubian uh, communities who were displaced by it. Um, the second thing I'd like to think about is these moments of resistance, um, these counter-hegemonic moments that, that don't officially um, realize themselves, that don't grow into a full counter-hegemonic moment or into a revolutionary moment. Where do they go? Um, and, how, and how do we talk about them and how do we document them also uh, so that these um, uh, traces of uh, this, these philosophical traces continue to contribute to a common sense or, or leave traces of a common sense that can be built upon by uh, future movements. Um, so, uh, yeah, and the third thing I want to say is that yeah, Gramsci's work was very important for me in understanding a moment like Nasserist Egypt and understanding how hegemony is something that uh, is not stable and not stagnant, but that is something that is co constantly contributed to, uh, to thinking about spontaneous philosophy and uh, what it entails of language uh, as a conception of the world, um, folklore and the way I look at songs and um, uh, common sense, uh, how it, it can, how we can imagine how it can be difficult to imagine that things could be any other way. Um, but I'm also very much inspired by uh, people, historians who worked with Gramsci, um, like Ted Swedenberg, who looks at, uh, at the way he looked at the, the um, uh, Saura Cobra in 1936 in Palestine, and Ranajit Koha and their ideas of oppositional memories, which is how people um, uh, remember sort of remember a moment very differently and how these memories are sort of left to continue to exist by the state. This is also something that I'm going to talk about. Um, so, so this is uh, uh, the front image of a children's magazine called Karawan in 1964, and these are three children looking at the building of the dam. And one child who I assume is Nubian, who speaks to another child who I assume is uh, Soviet, because his name is Johnny. Uh, and another child who is possibly from Cairo because her name is Sally. And he says, <laughs> So this is my father working on the high dam, and the next time you come here, you'll see the water flowing through. But the high dam was, was portrayed and sort of propagated as a very um, personal project, as a very personal as well as collective project. Uh, and people genuinely had a sense that they were part of it. Um, uh, in, in, in 1964, sort of version of the Talia, which was a, um, a leftist newspaper, they described the, the Haidam as a, an ideological laboratory. Um, so sort of the way Gramsci thought about the parliament and how parliament shouldn't, shouldn't treat politics as, as, as their historical laboratory. Uh, but they thought of the dam as an ideological laboratory. This is a place where you have the This is a place where you have the coalition of revolutionary forces. This is where the peasants will mix with the workers, will mix with the intellectuals. 
Um, this is where ideology will mix with industry. This is how peasants will become workers. And they also did the same with children. Uh, there were a lot of magazines. Yeah, there was, at the time, Karawan, Samir, and uh, a third magazine. Um, and there were lots of figures. So how many cubic meters of water were behind the dam and how much uh, electricity the dam was going to generate, how the crops were going to change because of the new irrigation systems, for instance, but also how the dam is born out of struggle and how without the popular resistance in Kursai, we wouldn't have the dam and that this water is blood and we have to be careful with how we uh, distribute it. Um, the, the, the dam was also a sort of converter. Everything that went and everyone that went through the dam would be transformed. The peasants would be transformed into workers, they would become cultured, so a lot of workers went in and if they played a musical instrument there was more space to do it. Uh, women would become more modern as well because the dam was going to transform Aswan from an exile into um, a modern community. There would be good schools, there would be electricity, um, and these ideas were also propagated to Nubian communities who were given brochures with how they would now have stoves and they would have running water and refrigerators, um, as well as being integrated into society. Songs played a very strong role. Um, and here's a picture of Om Kulsum going back to the radio and television station to edit her songs, to remove anything that referred to royalty, to remove, to, to remove anything that referred to the sort of pre-1952 um, society. And her songs and Abd Khayyim Hafiz's songs went into great detail also of disseminating information, of really mobilizing consent as to what it meant to be part of this moment. Um, whether it's the building of the high dam and what it would make of Egypt and what it would make of an Egyptian society, um, or what Arab nationalist socialism would mean to every household, to every child, to every individual. And this is one of Abdel Halim Hafiz's songs. It was transliterated for children. And there's a picture of Abdel Halim Hafiz, so they know who they sing it, and I'm not sure. This is the Lil Hamdi. who was a composer at the, at the time. Um, but yes, the songs were very important. So the question became, how can you tell, how can you tell another story? I mean, even when, when my first interviews with Nubian families, they would talk about how disastrous the, 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 the displacement was after the building of the high dam, but at the same time they would quote a, a, a sentence from a, or a phrase from Abdelhalim Hafiz's songs, the Kate Shab, stories of, stories of the people, uh, by saying, and the water was lost at sea and the deserts yearned for it, you know. As if, and this for me was common sense, you know, this, this, the building of the high dam had become common sense and it was encapsulated in these um, uh, verses and, and poetic terms that people repeated, not necessarily thinking that this is a song that's related to propaganda because it makes perfect sense. I mean, how could someone deny that, you know, economic independence or having electricity at home or more national income was something that wasn't good? And when I spoke to workers who built the dam, they're, I mean, they, they, they had become something, many of them had become something through the dam. This was not the story across the board, of course, 
um, anyone who was slightly critical would disappear or would have to disappear themselves so, so as not to be found. But, but many people who started out as laborers ended up being technicians uh, because they were sent to the Soviet Union or they were trained. The dam was a school, they would say. Uh, before the dam, all our, all, our, all our family or our women wore black, now they wear colors because you can afford more clothes as opposed to just wearing black to make sure that you can wear the same clothes over and over if you can't afford uh, others. But um, so there, there, and then after, now in retrospect, looking at the dam as something they devoted their whole lives to, how could they tell it in any other way? If, if they talk about um, their lives being lost on the building of the dam, then, then, then what, what would it have been worth? Their, their worth was tied to, to the dam. And that is also an understanding of hegemony when, when there is a sort of mutual recognition or when the, the, the people's own sense of self depends on, 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 on the, the continuation of this, of this ideology and, and vice versa. Um, and so my question was always how do I dig deeper but also what am I looking for? What I was looking for initially was resistance. I imagine that there must have been resistance amongst Nubian families to being displaced and there must have been resistance strikes amongst workers who worked on the dam. Um, but with time that seemed to be a naive way to look at it. But there were other things. Um, this was in relation to the workers uh, being schooled on the dam and this picture always reminds me of something the workers used to say was we were like ants nibbling at the mountain but they kept nibbling, nibbling, nibbling until they nibbled it into a dam. Um, one, so in this presentation, I'm going to focus on one interview and how, and how, um, how there are other stories to be found that also come through the other realms that language can create. Um, and this is a story of Nufisa Zuror, who is the youngest person in this picture. She was in her late 80s when I interviewed her in 2009. Um, and um, I think she was, she was quite, she was in her 30s or something when she was displaced. But it was very exciting to be able to interview her because this is someone who was probably old enough not, not to be sort of excited about the possibilities that the dam might offer, realizing what they might leave. Um, and when I, when I started with, you know, Abdelnasser's project and how she felt about it, etc., she described how when he died, they created a casket. When they heard on the radio that they, he died, they created a casket out of an old bed. They removed the mattresses from uh, the bed and they carried the, the bed around in the village um, as a sort of symbolic funeral. And I asked her, yes, but how can you not blame him for what happened? And then she told her daughter to tell me that if the purpose of this interview is to just to talk badly about Dr. Nelson, then we can just stop now. Um, but I asked her um, what the most difficult thing about the displacement was, and she thought for a while, and she said the most difficult thing definitely was to have to deal with the jinn after dealing with, um, after having dealt with the Nile people uh, for long periods of time. And the Nile people are like her people, people who lived in the Nile, who uh, Nubian communities revered, and there were lots of laws that dictated their relationship with the Nile people, and thus their relationship with the Nile, that you don't pollute the water, um, how you use it, that you baptize your children in the water when they're born, that you don't go by the water at night, that you make offerings, um, and that you sort of um, 
ask them for help um, or evoke, invoke them uh, during births or difficult moments. And when they were moved to these new places um, um, in, um, in, in, uh, in Nasr Nova, uh, where it was desert and there were only irrigation canals and no Nile, there were no Nile people. Um, and they now had to deal with the jinn. And she said, even though the jinn are Muslim like we are, um, you can't trust them, you know, the way that you did the Nile people. And here was a whole other world with different sort of political relations and uh, subjectivities and negotiations um, that made it feel like all the questions I was asking about Abdul Nasser and the dam were irrelevant. So maybe the, the moment of the dam and the moment of the displacement were dramatic, but the questions that I was asking were in direct relation to this mystifying hegemonic project um, that I thought I was trying to see beyond, but I was just constantly invoking it. Um, after that interview, and I was very interested in songs people sang about these moments, um, she sang a few lullabies that, they, that she sings to her children about how they need to be aware of the jib, um, and they were always continuations of, you know, of the songs that used to be sung about how to appease um, the Nile people, Nesinil. Um, she gave me something as I was leaving. It was a CD, and she said these were all her brother's private documents and that they would come in handy one day. Hmm. Um, I, I, her, her granddaughter, who was, who, was, who was translating at the time, opened the CD on a computer laptop, and it was all like her brother's um, uh, national ID and you know his business documents, etc. And I thought, this is super personal, <laughs> and uh, it, it actually won't be useful for my work. And I thanked her for it, and I tried not to take it, and she kept insisting that this is very important and will one day surely uh, come in handy. But I did look through the documents, and I didn't use them at all for my PhD because they felt very personal, and it felt like it would be sort of um, unethical in a way to use them, even though she insisted. I didn't know who her brother was, and I couldn't reach, some, reach him, and I didn't know what the implications of using such documents were. Um, they were the documents of Ahmad Shalkat, who was the, the Nubian man on the far right, and he worked with John Ray, who was on his left, um, who by, only by virtue of the SAP, I guess, worked for one of these Nile transport companies um, that, that were there at around the time that Khazen was built in the early 1900s, before, 19, before 1933. Um, after that, he moved to Alexandria in 1932, and on his on his national ID, he was a sufragi, a waiter. Um, um, and because of the sort of um, racial and class structures in Egypt, Nubians at the time who would go to Alexandria or Cairo would work as doormen or um, uh, serve in households. And then suddenly he was a businessman in Alexandria, and his name changed from Ahmad Shouk to Ahmad Shalkat on the national IDs, because Shalkat is a name that has sort of Turkish connotations and is, you know, um, indicative of another class. Um, and then I just kept going back and forth to it, and it's only, I think, last year or the year before that I realized that he had a notebook called Ta'weed Aheli Muba, or Ta'weed Mankubi El Khazen, which is the compensation of uh, Nubian communities. And I realized that these were meetings, minutes of meetings, to brainstorm for the creation of petitions 
to, um, um, to resist the heightening of the, of the reservoir. There was a reservoir built in Aswan by the British Mandate before um, the dam. It was built in 1902, I think, and it was heightened in 1912 once and another time in 1933. These, these were meetings to brainstorm how they would write petitions to stop the heightening of the, of the Khazan in 1933, which would result in not the big displacement that happened in 1964, but still displacement, displacements on their existing villages or in Zuha, away from the villages. Um, and so these were mainly um, minutes of meetings uh, brainstorming the petitions and then I came here to queue. This is Ahmed Shouk when he became Ahmed Shoukat. Um And I found, uh, I found petitions um, and there were a few different kinds. There, there was this one for example, Kalimat al-Nubiyin al-Igma'iyya fi kasat al-Khazin al-Ihmal al-Hukuma b-Marsum um, so this is the unified uh, word of uh, Nubians against the catastrophe that is the reservoir. And this was calling for Nubians not to accept compensation for the heightening uh, of the reservoir. Because once they accept compensation, then the struggle goes somewhere else, which is what happened. Because once here he was saying, they were saying, because a lot of people signed this, a lot of villagers signed this uh, document, that if we accept compensation, then we will be saying that, um, that our, 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 our cemeteries, our lives, our culture, our temples, our, our architecture that is the basis of our identity, um, is to be valued with money somehow and to be compensated for, when it cannot and it should not. And once we open that door, then that, that, that will be the level of our struggle of whether or not or how much we're being compensated for. Um, and this was in reaction to a law that was introduced that Nubians should be compensated for inundated lands. And they attached to this many maps. In Ahmed Shalkit's documents, he had gotten maps from National Geographic. He had gotten maps from um, um, Cairo University irrigation curricula. Um, and uh, maps were not uh, the sort of indigenous Nubian way of referring to land, but it was a language they needed to take up in order to be able to negotiate um, for you know, what land is theirs and what, what land should not be touched. Another petition was written, and here is a translation of it, to, the, um, to addressing the High Commissioner uh, at the time and asking that, you know, that, 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 they, that saying that the Egyptian government has always marginalized Nubian communities, but the British don't want to be the people that did that too. And think of what happened to Native Americans, and think of what happened to other indigenous populations in other countries, and you don't want to be the people that, that will have oppressed um, these populations um, you don't want to go down in history in this way. Um, which is a very progressive sort of um, uh, um, language and discourse for resistance that, that when we think of Nubian communities now and this constant discourse that they are peace-loving people and therefore never revolt, it, it, it obviously wasn't, I mean, isn't uh, always um, something else had happened, basically, that, that hadn't fulfilled, totally uh, fulfilled itself. Um, this last document was one in 1964, uh, but it was an empty notebook. And so clearly between 1964 and 1965, there was this attempt to, to, to also petition against uh, the displacement of Nubians, um, of Nubian communities. 
And um, one of my interlocutors in, in, a, in a village called Aneba said that in 1967 they actually organized themselves in Aneba and they, they went to demand their right to return, but they were told it's too late. Now when we talk about displacement and Tahir, we think of Suez, we think of the Suez Canal after 1967, but there's, um, there's nothing to be talked about basically. Um, this is very important because in 2014, um, and after a, a movement by Nubian communities from the 90s leading up to, to, to the early 2000s, there was this demand that, and it, it really did result in that um, uh, an article in the Constitution um, acknowledged the Nubian right to return. And once this article was in the Constitution, uh, despite the article being in the Constitution, in 2016, the military uh, determined um, certain lands as military property. And in, I think uh, in, two th in 2017, they actually tried to sell Tushka um, and, and other Nubian villages. And this started a movement uh, by Nubian youth called the Caravan of Return, Qafilat al Auda, where they tried to return to Nubian lands, and I think in around 2000, sorry, the dates fail me, um, in 2016 they were besieged on their way to Abu Simbel, and in 2017 they were very ruthlessly arrested, and a number of people actually died in, in prison. And they were called Mu'taqali Dufuf. Dufuf is Gamma Duff, which is um, a percussion instrument, a Duff, and um, because they were always making music um, in, in the routes to return. At the time, it seemed, it seemed like um, a movement that spurred out of nowhere, you know? Nubians were never resistance, they never marched for their rights. This is so unprecedented and it is a result of 2011. But we could also think about it as a case of positionality. The situation in 1933 may have somehow allowed for this movement to grow, and even though it was unrealized, this was part of Nafisa Zorar's legacy. And that's probably why she gave the CD to me, because this is a legacy. She might not harbor harsh feelings towards Abdel Nasser, or part of her history might somehow be linked to him, for that was not the question to ask, but this history, this legacy of resistance, belongs to her somehow. And when the moment was right again, after 2011, this movement spread up. Um, in thinking about this, I also think um, in thinking about this and these moments, like this introduction of uh, the, 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 the compensation, the sort of laws that, that demand that Nubians be compensated, I think of Gramsci and how just like um, it's hard to think of a moment, uh, a discursive moment before this discursive moment of compensating people whose lands you take away or inundate, I wonder if there was a moment when it was difficult to think about a political prisoner producing ideas in prison. Um, and I think about this because I actually lost my uh, uh, copy of the prison notebooks and tried very hard over the, the, this last year to retrieve it because I had lent it to my friend Ala Abdel Fateh who has been in prison for 10 years now. The first time I gave it to him was after he was shortly after he was arrested in November 2013. And uh, at the time, he sent a letter saying it was really boring. He's not sure why I would send something like this to someone in his situation. But then later, he wrote briefly to say that he and Duma were really enjoying it because he and Ahmad Duma 
also a young Egyptian activist who's uh, sentenced to life in prison at the moment, started taking passages of Gramsci and um, sharing them, and then responding to each other with them, and then out of this came one of their famous pieces, uh, which is called Graffiti for Two People, Graffiti of But I thought a great idea for this presentation would be reading Gramsci in prison, and then maybe he could tell me through his, uh, his sister's visits um, what he'd like me to talk about. And he, at this point, 37 days at the moment into his hunger strike, said that he did not want to take part in something that glorified um, productions in prison. Because prison is not a time to be productive, it is a time for your soul to be crushed. And it made me think that if we really want to sort of honor Gramsci's legacy, then every time we talk about him, we should think of the devastating circumstances that he lived in in the last 10, 11 years of his life, that it shouldn't have been that way under any circumstances, and that it shouldn't continue to be this way all these decades later. Thank you.